and welcome to this episode of Stories of Strange Women. We're your hosts. I'm Tanya Hurley. And I'm Tracy Hurley Martin. And today we welcome Mallory O'Meara, the author of The Lady from the Black Lagoon. It's a book about uh, Millicent Patrick, who was a creator of the creature of Gilman, um, the creature from the Black Lagoon. And how she got no credit for it. Mm -hmm. Um, Bud Westmore, who was the head of the Department of Universal, took the credit. And and she was actually the creator of the monster. Mm -hmm. And it's a story, it's a book, it's a a beautiful book. It's well written. The statistics are amazing about the, the horror genre. And how, you know, Mallory is a screenwriter and a producer. And how her story is woven in through Millicent's. Yeah, and how it, things haven't changed that much, Mm-mm. unfortunately, in that in that world. Mm-hmm. And and so, it, yeah, you, the book is, we recommend it to everybody, whether you're into monsters or not. Yeah, and horror. really, Mallory has done such a service. I mean, she, she um, really got Millicent... Um, I mean, to the attention of the Academy, even they're do, they're hosting screenings, um, and acknowledging Millicent's contribution and giving away this book during them, and that's you know that's no small feat. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what an accomplishment for her to get Millicent Patrick the, all this attention after mm-hmm. so so much so much time yeah, so has passed. Bravo! Mallory. Yeah, I mean, this book you know sets out to right that wrong, yeah. and we are we were very lucky to get her into the studio so we hope you enjoy this episode thank you so much for joining us we i am so excited that you're here um i'm a big horror fan i write horror for teens oh my gosh and i um so this book was for you this book was for me and i'm surprised maybe you can in the uh you know next print you can um, the pr- next print run, you can put my name in it somewhere, <laughs> dedicated to me. Um, but I think that every every woman reading this book feels that way. You know, I mean, everything you talk about in this book is universal, not just to the horror world, but to entertainment in general and, and women, yeah. life and women. And it's just so exciting that you went out there and did this. Thank you so much. I really wanted it to be a book that wasn't just for people who are a bit obsessed with monsters. You know, mm-hmm. I wanted any woman to be able to pick up this book and realize not only how important all this stuff is, like, you know, that we belong in horror, but how this stuff ripples outwards into parts of society that have nothing to do with film, nothing to do with horror, nothing to do with any of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely got that in the book, and I I, I just recommend it to everybody. Thank you so because much. Because of that. Um, and I love how it, you know, parallels your life Thank with, you. With Millicent's that we'll get into later. Um, but it's just, and so how much so, like, so little has changed in yep. the horror world. I think yep. you, you have a statistic where 60 years ago, 100% of, um, of horror films were directed by men. Is yeah. that right? And then now it's like, 96 or yeah. 7%. And how yep. after 60 years, it's only changed yep. that minuscule amount. We only need another thousand years and maybe we'll get there. It's yeah. crazy. I mean, it's it really is crazy. And I, I don't know what the answer is there. I mean, I do, but I don't know why it's not happening. Yeah. I mean, do you have any idea why it's not happening? Because you you're, you work in a production company. Mm-hmm. You're a producer of, of horror films as well as yeah. a writer and podcast 
post. Well, it's sort of a perfect storm, I think. And one, you know, horror has been a man's world for a long time, but there's this weird unconscious and sometimes conscious bias that men have that women can't handle violence, they can't handle gore. They, that, that's the weird part about all of this is that we're like, okay, we can't handle this stuff, but we have periods, we give birth, we're the ones who get mm -hmm. stalked and, and raped and murdered, yeah, but we're the ones who can't handle it. Mm -hmm. and I, but I've talked to lots of female editors, female directors who've had people, male producers say, well, you know, can you do this, can you edit this violence? Can you shoot st scenes like this? And they're like, yeah, of course I can. So it's that mixed in with it's, you know, the industry has become sort of a self-licking ice cream cone where men get jobs, so then men get more jobs. And it's harder and harder for women to break into things because, oh, well, we could give it to this person who has shot five movies or this lady who's never shot anything. And that mixed with the fact that they are unlikely to give her a chance anyways because she they think that she can't handle gore or violence. And those two things mash up and it's really, really tough. And also, you know, you, you talk about how women are seen, you know, in the movies as damsels in distress and, you know, and it doesn't really match up with real life. No. The, women, the lives of real women. Yeah. Who experience horror every day. And, yes. And, and get attacked every day and get, you know, sexually harassed. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's a real, we live a horror. We live the horror. Yes, for and sure. So we walk out of the movie theater and we are still in that experience. Whereas guys walk out and they can just, or if they're white guys they, or white straight guys, they can just go home and not think about it. But they, we don't have that luxury. Right. I think we connect to it on a real deep, a, a deep level. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Because where else do we get to see those monsters getting killed? Mm -hmm. Where else do we ever get that catharsis except right. in a horror movie? In revenge. <laughs> oh, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> so t let's start talking about um, you growing up and what you were like. Exactly as, as, as I am now, girl, actually. <laughs> a little girl who loved horror, mm -hmm. didn't see herself really reflected on the screen, but loved it and loved monsters. Yes. So I think I did what a lot of women do, and I, that when you're into horror or metal or music in some way, is that you say, okay, well, I only see guys in this world. I have to camouflage myself. And you don't wear makeup, you don't dye your hair, you dress like a guy, and you think... It's like, you know, in zombie movies when people are like, well, if we cover ourselves with enough gore, we can walk through the horde. That's how you feel because you don't see any female uh, role models. You see nothing there. So you want to be, I was listening to this great interview on NPR the other day with this uh, female musician. She's a British musician. I can't remember her name, but she said, I always aspire to be the wife of a musician because that's the only place I saw women in this music world. So for me, I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to dress like a boy. I like boy stuff not realizing that there was an alternate path because I saw other girls doing girl stuff, you know, things that were girl, like things that were pink, Barbies, fashion, makeup. And I didn't, wasn't interested in that. And I didn't know that you, it wasn't, they weren't mutually exclusive. And, and I, you know, we are taught to think that girl things are inferior, girl stuff is weak, it's not as intellectual, it's not as cool. So I didn't want to be involved with that. I really internalized all those messages. So I thought, I don't want anything to do with girl stuff. I want to do boy stuff, so I want to look like a boy. Yeah, you, you even say, uh, to jump a little bit, you say that the thing you didn't like about Millicent Patrick was that she wore heels and yes. she wore makeup. It was the only thing with her I couldn't connect with because it was so anomalous seeing a woman who was so unapologetically feminine in a masculine space making monsters her own way. It was like completely, it was like being struck by lightning. It was just so, so I, I couldn't figure it out. It's like, but you're not allowed to do that. You have to be like a boy. Wait, 
you're in heels, what? Like, it just was yeah. incredible to me. And it took me a long time to come, like, and it, I had to regurgitate all that internalized misogyny before I could realize, oh my God, how fucking badass that this woman did this. In the yeah. 50s. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, so, so where did you grow up? I grew up in a place called Haverhill, Massachusetts, okay. which is actually, weirdly enough, the same place where Rob Zombie grew up. It's like and uh, horror author for author Christopher Golden. So it's like a little I mean, maybe it's like a little horror place in the world. Um, it's about forty five minutes north of Boston. So I grew up like marinating in that New England horror uh, sauce. I guess I mean mm-hmm. New England is a great place to grow up if you love horror. It's the land of Lovecraft. It's the land of Stephen King. Mm-hmm. You go a little bit south, you got some Poe in there. Mm-hmm. It's uh, I, I loved growing up in New England. Mm-hmm. And you have Salem. <laughs> yes. Oh, for yeah. sure. You it really. I actually went back to Salem, Massachusetts recently with my two best friends because they're from New York and Missouri, mm-hmm. had never been. And we take it for granted that New England is such a spooky place and you get to learn about the witch trials and, you know, legends and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's such an old place comparatively to the rest of the country that I'm like, oh, yeah, you guys didn't get stuff like this. It's a great place to grow up. Yeah, off. we just went this summer. We took our kids. We, we go every so often, but this is the first time we took our kids. And it's so fun. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's amazing. It's all, it's fun, it's entertaining, but it's also, you you learn so much up there. I mean, you really learn history and about women. Yes, and it's actually getting a lot better. When I was a kid, a lot of the stuff in Salem was very exploitative. It was like, you know, oh, the terrible witches, you know, cartoon witch stuff everywhere. And now they're actually working really hard to, like, we took a feminist witch walking tour, Mm -hmm. uh, which was absolutely incredible by now age. And it was looking at all of those sites but through a feminist queer lens of like what it really in, in paralleling that with what's going on today and there's like there's a great store called house witch and there's all these like you know yeah i spent i spent every last time i had in there yeah but it, it's great to see a place like that that normally was you know mining these women's like suffering for prop, profit mm-hmm. now really focusing on you know why what why this happened you know in honoring them there's mm-hmm. a i'm excited to hear that the salem witch museum is actually has hired a group of women to re uh re sort of reinvent the museum that's through that feminist what? lens that's great instead of like you know these kind of slightly racist waxy gross figures that yeah. have been around yeah, since yeah, the yeah. 70s which is fun though <laughs> they're so ridiculous yeah. they're so campy but now they're finally like we need to tell we need to recognize our own responsibility in the way that we're telling these stories mm-hmm. and it's like oh my god this is amazing <laughs> and that, that it's a lifestyle for yes. many many women and, yes. and men you know you don't have to be a woman to be a witch yeah and uh so i i just yeah i love it up there so you so growing up what was school like for you i mean did you it was like going to work in? no it okay. was, going to school for me was like I, I looked at it as going to work I'm very ambitious and I've always liked school but it wasn't a place where I looked at socializing stuff I was always weird reader fantasy nerd horror nerd uh, but luckily I'm very friendly and I had friends outside of school I was able to make friends at other schools and other neighborhoods so you connected with the things that you connect but I mean yes. at that time it was hard right because did you have no internet, internet? This, was pre, yeah. this was pre-social media how did you media. do that I I'll, I uh, would go like to cons or like Conventions. yeah just like other like other external events or I would like I had one friend who used to start it in my school but she moved and then she introduced me to friends over there so I think a lot of the suffering that people deal with in middle school and high school comes from this like okay this is my only place this is all of my where I spend my days this is all of my social like you know output 
that's all I have. And if I'm a loser here, then I'm a loser everywhere. And I think mm -hmm. if more kids got the opportunity to branch out, because I got to see, oh, well, you know what? This isn't like this everywhere. This is the cool thing. Right, there are, my people are out there. I just, yeah. Yes. I have to find them. Yes. And so I never Your tribe despair. is out there. Yes, for sure. It's I fine. think it's easier with the internet now. Oh, it's so much easier. It's when God. we were growing up. I wish there was Twitter when I was a kid. Like a lot of people, you know, despair. Like, oh, I'm so glad there was no social media yeah. when I was a kid. So all of my terrible exploits wouldn't be put on Facebook. But for kids that are a little weird or, you know, kids that are queer or kids, kids that need, you know, don't fit into this normal social structure, it's a lifesaver. You mm -hmm. know, things like Twitter or Tumblr, Instagram, mm -hmm. just even if you don't get to interact with them in real life, interacting with them on the internet shows that you're not alone. God, I wish I had that when I was, when I was 14 years old. Yeah. It's just that confirmation that you're okay and... Yeah, and you're not, you know, that you're not weird, or if you yeah. are weird, that it's fine. There are other yes. people who are weird like that, mm -hmm. you know. We would go make friends at the Renaissance Fair, and like, you know, it really, oh yeah, super nerdy. So nerdy. We used to wait for the carnivals to come. We lived in bumfuck nowhere in Uniontown, and we, Pennsylvania, and we just would wait for the carnivals to come mm -hmm. so that we could talk to carnies who had British accents. But that's like, that's your little moment where you get transported somewhere else and yeah. you see a glimpse of another way right. of doing things. Mm -hmm. And if you're weird, that's, that, those moments mean the, mean the whole world to you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so what, what was your first, what, what was your first monster, it was a horror film or a monster flick uh, that you remember seeing and it kind of changing you? The Crate and Creepshow. Okay. The the Beast in the Crate. Uh, so when I was a kid, I read all the books that we had in the house. And one of the books we had, my mom uh, had the comic of Creepshow. Because when Creepshow came out, they were... So your mom was into comics? No. Okay. She just saw the movie, and I don't remember why, but they were giving out the comic when you went to see the film. And she kept it. And I read it, and it was the first my first exposure to, like horror literature and I saw the first story is the crate and I had to see the movie and it was I just absolutely fell in love with it you connected to it yes in what ways and it me horror really has always been able to transport me a little bit like uh, I write in the book a lot about Fantasia because that was my first I love what you write about Fantasia and and, Fantasia. The, and how you connected to I'll, I'll show you my Chernobog tattoo. Okay. This, I, that's, <laughs> yeah. It's all, all over my neck. Oh, wow. And uh, didn't Millicent work on that certain yes. part that you really connected to, which yes. I thought was amazing? Oh, it was. The, I, I can't make this stuff up. Yeah. So uh, seeing stuff like that, you know, Fantasia or Creepshow, I, I'm a very anxious person. I've always had really bad anxiety since I can remember. And horror mm -hmm. is such a catharsis if you are anxious because I went from being anxious about like do my parents love me am i too fat am i whatever mm -hmm. uh, all the weird things you worry about when you're a kid do my friends hate me like am i going to fail this next test to being worried about something that wasn't real is so soothing and it's like an anxiety vacation and it's hard to articulate to people who don't have anxiety but seeing stuff like that it got me out of my brain and it was, I, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I thought it was the first stuff that I ever thought about outside of consuming it. You know, when you're a kid, you're like, oh, I watched this movie, that's fun. But I started thinking about Fantasia and the crate and all this stuff at night. And you know, it would scare me, but I couldn't, I couldn't put away. It was so engaging to me. And it made me stop worrying about these other things. And I was hooked on the experience. Well, there was also, it, it you know, there was also something you connected to on a very deep level, right? Yes. And, and the and the horror 
stories. Oh, absolutely. That's, I think that's why I write about teen horror. I write teen horror because there's nothing more horrific than being a teen, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. In school. And being a teen... Well, it's also like a being in a Cronenberg movie, but mm-hmm. being a teenager is living a like five-year-long span of being in a body horror movie. Yeah. It is hor- it's it's horrifying. Great. I am I'm traumatized and I, my brain has has stayed there. So. Yeah, it being a teen is really hard and so I think that you know we we live in this world where people are like oh we got to shield kids from this stuff. It's, I think kids when you're a kid, everything is hyperbole to you. When you're a teenager, you're living in a body horror movie. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're a kid, everything's going to eat you. Everything's going to kill you. Everything you're afraid of everything. You're powerless. Mm-hmm. Kids live horror movies every day. Yeah. They are, and they are so elastic to it. They can deal with this stuff. I think that we need to trust kids more and let them have this. I mean, it, it helped me so much. And I think when you're an anxious person, you're constantly caught in that stage two of a problem. You're in this like purgatory where you're anxious and anxious and anxious and never, it's never going to end. A horror movie is the only thing that could take you through the rest of that cycle. Yeah. You get to see something get defeated. Yeah. You have your happy ending. You can breathe for a little while. Mm-hmm. And for me, I'm still hooked on the experience. I mean, horror, when we were young, it was, you know, you had to sneak in, you had to, mm-hmm. it was secretive. You couldn't tell people, you know, couldn't yeah. tell your parents that you yeah. were, you know, in a horror. I mean, it's, there's so much more access today. Oh yeah. Uh, for kids oh, and I sure. love that that they can just you know seek it out and get it whenever they want oh absolutely yeah um so so you grew up in Massachusetts and you what you you, you connected to horror yes and you started going to all these cons yes and you made friends you had this community yes that you um that you that you put together and yes. then then what so I uh, my, where it really all started for me is that, so I actually, because I couldn't see myself in the horror world, it never occurred to me that I could do it professionally. I actually was on the track to be the female Steve Irwin. Like, that's what I wanted to do. I went, I was- Really? Yeah, I wore, okay. I, all, I, all I wanted to do was work with animals. I went to, I went to college for animal science. And, but I always, I still loved horror and I wanted to be involved because I thought, it was like that, that interview I talked about where the woman wanted to be a musician's wife. I wanted yes. to be like a horror, hardcore horror fan. And so I, you know, went went to lots of events, and I uh, what I did is I made my own horror book club. That's where it all started, and I would literally see people online. This Facebook had started up by that by then, and or pe- in a bookstore, and I saw if I saw someone with a horror book, I'd be like, Hey, do you want to be my friend? And you yeah. want to join my book club? Right. And it became so big, and that I it's like starting a band. Do you want to start a band? Do yes. you Like, do you like music? Do you like this band? That was exactly yeah. what it was like, and it got so popular that I opened up a different chapters in different states. One in New Hampshire. Wow. One in Rhode Island, and it got so big that people started to know what about was it. What's it called? Uh, the Arkham Horror Book Club. Sweet. Because it took place in Salem, Massachusetts. The first mm-hmm. chapter was in Salem, Massachusetts, which is. Lovecraft's Arkham mm-hmm. and so uh, I got, had a convention actually contact me they wanted me to run their volunteer program because they knew that I had this big book club and I was good at managing all of it and I thought this is great you know this is what I want to do and I was also doing walking tours of Salem Massachusetts and I was doing uh, we had a horror geocaching team like all this ridiculous stuff because I just wanted to be involved in the community so bad so how old were you when you were doing this so this was when I was like 20, 21, 22, 23. Okay, so you kind of carved out a horror life for yourself there. You were getting yes. paid and you were yeah, it's some of the for the walking tours yes. and things like that. That, was, that I was getting yeah. paid for. The book club was all just mm-hmm. free. But it was great because mm-hmm. I had a massive group of people who liked horror and wanted to talk about it. Yeah. And we would go see horror movies together. We would read books together. We would go p- pumpkin picking together. 
uh, we had a blast. And then at this particular convention, which I still go to, it's called Necronomicon Providence. Mm-hmm. It's a weird fiction convention and in Providence, Rhode Island. And uh, I met my current boss, Sultan Saeed al-Darmaki. He was a sponsor of the convention. And he just started a production company in 2013. And he said, hey, I see you're working with, with all these people. You're really friendly. Do you want to run the social media for my company? And I said, yes. And I dropped out of college and I quit my job at the veterinary clinic and I stopped going to my internship uh, at the, a wildlife center and I thought, this is my end. And I took it because I was like, I'm a girl. No more female Steve Irwin. No. So, so maybe someday. Let, that, let, let Mindy, so, yes. Mindy do that. So, yeah, somebody else will take on that mantle. Uh, and I just thought, you know, when, am I, when else am I ever going to get this chance? Yeah. And I took it and I so still work there. Were you were you freaked out? I mean, were you like, I don't know. I, I, I did you doubt yourself? Like I Yes, absolutely. I you know, I had no I'd never been to film school. I didn't know anything about movies, uh, besides, you know, I knew a lot about horror movies, but I didn't know anything about filmmaking, which I think is the differentiation that people need to know. Is there's mm-hmm. one thing about know, knowing a lot about it's like knowing a lot of albums versus knowing how to play an instrument. Right. It's just two different skill sets. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just wanted it so bad. But you still know what makes a horse. You, you know what makes a horror story yes. work. Yes, absolutely. And what people connect to, and because because of your own personal experience. So yes. Um, and I just started getting. Um, I, I got promoted to within six months to being an associate producer on the film we were working on, and. I what film was it. that? Kids vs. Monsters. Yes, right. And I loved it. Being a producer was so great for me because I'm sort of a masochist when it comes to organization I just love you know throw me throw me to the spreadsheets and I'll be so happy and that's not a lot of people are like that but for me as an anxious person I love organizing so I I took to it and it I I just kept working really hard and I taught myself as much as I could and all of a sudden I was doing it I was in the world did your boss I mean take you aside and kind of teach you about spreadsheets and how did you how did no, you pick I that figured up it in out six months? I figured it out on my own. I read a ton of books. Um I started reading Like how to? Yeah, like how to. Uh, I love Lloyd Kaufman's How to Make Your Own Damn Movies mm-hmm. books. Those are great. Um I brought just bought tons of books on filmmaking, talked to other filmmakers. I had a mentor who is still one of my closest friends, a man named Frank Woodward, who's a writer, director, editor, and he took me under his wing and taught me all kinds of stuff and I just started to figure it out and I loved it and it was just this big eye-opening thing for me especially when I started to travel to Los Angeles and meet a ton of other female filmmakers mm-hmm. and I thought oh nobody in this industry knows what the hell they're doing we're all just making it up <laughs> and, and across, I can do it too. The, across the board in yeah. any profession no Anything. one knows what they're doing yeah we're all just and I was like if I, I'll just I'm very big I'm a big proponent of fake it till you make it yeah right and I feel like I I I the little, the less I knew about you know publishing and filmmaking, yeah. the 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 more chances I'd take and the more risks. Yeah, because you I'd don't do. know enough to be scared. Yeah. yeah, right. I think there's a lot of value to that, and you just don't know enough to and know. You're that not you can't self-editing yourself. No, you know, you're, you're just not. Like, I'll figure it out. Yeah, you're like this. Why wouldn't this work? Yes. You know, you're not like well, no one's ever done this before. You know. Oh yeah, just like I mean, with this book, this is a book Although that I should not have sold, and, but I didn't know any better. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean. Thank God it, it, it exists. I mean, it is so important. It's entertaining, but Thank it's you. so important. I, I, Especially in the horror genre. I mean, it's yeah. really... And you must be getting a lots of pushback, I, I would I, guess. I think this is the first book that ever got hate mail before it was published. Okay. <laughs> From men, of course. Yeah. 
Well, let's go. Let's we'll talk about that. But I, I just want to talk about um, your first film that you worked on, and um, you you did T-shirts, I think. Yes. Oh, that's and, so. I put the scene in the book, um, and I part of uh, to roll it back a little bit. Part of the reason why I wanted to put part of myself in Lady from the Black Lagoon and put these experiences of sexual harassment in there is because it's so easy to say oh, you know what, this stuff happened to Millicent Patrick in the 1950s. It's such a bummer that it happened back then. But it's not just happening back then. It's still happening right now. And the easiest way I knew how to illustrate that was to give examples of my own experiences. And so on this first film that I was working on, I was the only female producer. And I love my boss. I still work for him. He's one of my closest friends. He's like my brother from another mother. Uh, but there were people on that set that weren't great. You know, this is what it's like to work in Hollywood. And it was the, we had art, we're all, we'd almost wrapped and we had printed out these shirts, the, like crew shirts, you know, kids versus monsters. And we were all getting them. I drove over to the production office to pick them up. And there was um, our product, one of the production coordinators, you know, was helping, like, you know, showed me here's the boxes. And I was all excited, you know, oh my God, we literally, I did it. We got the t-shirt, you know, this is great. This is my first feature film. And he looks at me very casually and he says, you know, Mallory, how many times do you have to sleep with your boss before you did like to keep your job. And I was so flabbergasted that I didn't, you know, we all go, we all think about these situations and we watch movies and we're like, oh, I would have some witty thing to say, or I would say something that is great. You just think you're going back just even now. Oh yeah. I should have said oh, this. I should have said, oh, I should have said oh, this. All the great things yeah. I could have said, but when it happens, a lot but of you us, wrote a book instead. Yeah. It, 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 you know, you may. I wonder if he knows it. that it is him. <laughs> I hope, I don't remember exactly who he is too. But I, you know, what happens is you get a dump of adrenaline and you freeze. Your mind goes completely blank and all you really want to do is be out of that situation. So I just sort of mumbled like, none. And he was like, huh, and walked away. He was very, literally surprised. And I know that wouldn't happen with a male producer. You know, people, no one, no one, this guy wasn't looking at me and thinking, oh, she's young and she's the only girl producer. Like she's probably really good at her job. He thought, oh, she must be fucking her boss. That's the only way she could have got here. Uh, and it w shook me so, so badly and it, it infuriated me. And I like, I know how, so, so many women, mo almost, all of us have had an experience like that. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to fold that into this narrative, that, like how many, what, what we go through and why it's important that we talk about all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and, and. I guess we can, you know, get back to. I, I love that you're doing like a monster, you know, m making me too kind of thing here with this. Be book. Basically, me too, me shape of water. Yeah, <laughs> and, I, and I, I really, I mean, when you were saying about your um, experience as a producer, that that terrible experience you just illustrated, but um, how Millicent too. I mean, when you were saying I'm doing, I'm doing this book. Yeah. Um, the blowback. Oh yeah, Twitter. let's get back to that. About oh yeah, you so said you guys it, par it parallels. Yes, and we're talking 1950s to mm -hmm. today. So so when this book got when I started working on this book, I got so much pushback from male historians, male filmmakers, who straight up refused to believe that this woman had done anything. They were convinced that she was somebody's girlfriend. That was what they kept saying to me. She must have just been somebody's girlfriend, and that's it. Brought me back to that moment where someone thought that I was just my boss's girlfriend or I had just been fucking my boss. And it 
infuriated me and it actually gave me the fuel that I really needed to push forward. Like this has not changed. It has not at changed at all. At all. And they're I was like they're doing it to her just like they did it to me. Mm-hmm. And that's why no one has known who she is for because I mean the pieces of Millicent Patrick's life have been lying around for 65 years and yeah. no one's picked them up because so many people just oh well she this this woman who's in all these photos of the of the of the production of creature from the pre-production of creature from the black lagoon must have just been somebody's girlfriend like all these clues have just been sitting there but no one had decided to pick it pick yeah, it up i love that the time said something about you 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 take her from the the murky swamp and bring her in her story into the light yeah and it's I, ridiculous well that's why it, for me i wanted to call it lady from the black lagoon because she's been in one mm-hmm. for decades and all of the all of the hard evidence and proof of her doing this stuff has just been sitting there but people like all these old crusty misogynistic film film guys have had their fingers in there and they're like nope 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 can't be that she's a woman she can't have done this she can't have done this and it's so ridiculous so let's talk a little bit about her for the pe- for the listeners that don't know much about her who who is Millicent Patrick so right? Millicent Patrick designed the creature from the black lagoon but she also I keep talking about her like she's the Forrest Gump of the 1950s. She really blazed this massive trail across all types of art and film. She was one of the first female animators at Disney. She was an actress. She was a model. She was an illustrator. She was. She had a lot of firsts, and she also grew up at Hearst Castle, which was incredible. And she had tumultuous relationships with lots of famous people. She really, again, she's like the Forrest Gump of the 1950s. She had such an incredible life and made such a big mark for women and she's a you know this feminist trailblazer but because of what we just talked about nobody's known who she was for mm-hmm. for years because uh, while she was working on creature from the black lagoon uh after when they were getting ready to promote the movie they sent her on a press tour to promote it and her boss at the universal what monster was the shop press tour called um the well it was supposed to be the beauty who created the, the beauty right and then they changed it to the beauty who lives with the beast because her boss at the monster shop Bud Westmore was so jealous of the attention that she was receiving that at first like the word creator <laughs> he didn't he didn't want he made, he forced her to lie and tell people that she didn't design it that he designed it but even with that he was so jealous of the attention she received that while she was out on the tour he fired her and blacklisted no one knew and when she came back she had no job she never worked behind the scenes in film ever again and nobody knew what happened to her for mm-hmm. 65 years and credits, uh, you talk about this in the book too, credits uh, back then were kind of just the head of the department really yep. got the credit on screen. Yep. And it was like a few title cards at the beginning of a movie. Yeah. You know, you would see just the heads of production. There wasn't like a 10 minute end crawl like we get now where every single person and who rightfully so gets credit for the work that they did on the movie. So things like that could slide by because there was no Twitter, there was no IMDb. And mm-hmm. also people didn't care. Yeah, it's it it, it wasn't un, unheard of to not get screen credit for something like that. But yeah. it was you know usually people in the business and they get you got your credit other in other yes. places. But she never really did, right? No, because he um, she was like this dark secret kind of thing. Exactly, and because immediately, well, that was the funny thing is when the movie they were shooting the movie, Bud Westmore didn't think Creature was a good monster. He didn't think it was going to be a good movie, so he already started immediately started um, bad-mouthing the movie and the monster. But then in test screenings, once they realized that this movie was going to be a hit, he started to backpedal, and that's when he started to take credit for it. And then by the end of the... By, by the time the movie had come out, he was like, oh, we love Creature. I'm so proud of the work that I did on it. Like, very mm-hmm. complete 180. So how did you... This woman who's, you know, 
shrouded in such mystery, really, in, in the horror world, in, in the world. Um, how did you find, how, how did you track down any, any information about her? I mean, I, you talk about in the book how you, you know, you went to Disney, I believe it was. Yes. And <laughs> you just show up there. Yeah, basically. I didn't know how to get in. You know, it's like, so tell fun. me about this woman. Yeah. <laughs> like, because there was nothing, like, it really was. Did, were, did you hire a private detective? No, I oh, tried to. You tried to. Right. Way too expensive. Right. <laughs> way too expensive. Where, where was your GoFundMe for that? Uh, right? That's what I should have done. Yeah. Because you just, you know, you had, she lived, Melissa Patrick lived in an age, you know, before Facebook, before social media, before the internet. I had to reverse engineer a life, basically. I didn't, all I had was this knowledge that she worked on the creature. That's it. I didn't have birth dates, death dates, didn't really know anything about her. And so I started from there. And did you know to to what extent she worked on the creature? Nope. Nobody did. And so I, I just started from there and I started to, I went down into archives and went down into libraries and sort of taught myself how to research. Um, Cause I dropped out of high school and college. I don't have any formal training in anything, but we have the library, which is the greatest resource that this country has. And Amen. I mean, yes, yeah. it's, you can ask librarians things and they'll tell you for free. Yeah. It's amazing. So I just started, I started looking for these breadcrumbs and I found, you know, I, uh, knew she worked on the creature and I knew her name was Millicent Patrick so I started my first big break was the Los Angeles Times archives that had an interview with her years and years after creature about 30 years after um, where she was talking about her father, her role. Is this before? Is this before you got the tattoo of her? No, I got the tattoo first. You got the tattoo first, so that that is what really kicked everything off. Kicked everything off. But your obsession with her was before that. Way, way before that. Why? Been, why were you obsessed with her? Because she was a woman that created. She was the only woman I had ever seen who worked on a monster movie. Okay. When I was a teenager, after I saw Creature from the first time, I was looking up stuff about it online and found just this one photograph of her working on the suit, and it said Millicent Patrick, illustrator and designer. And I thought it was like breaking my brain open. Up until that point, all my heroes were Rick Baker, Tom Sweeney, Dick Smith, Jack Pierce, all these monster guys. And it never occurred to me that I could do so that. So that very moment changed your whole life. Yep. You seeing that picture. Yep. You can trace so, everything back to that single And moment. then you got the tattoo. Yes. And the, your, the tattoo artist that did your tattoo, right, just suggested like, oh, this would be a great story, right? Uh, well, no, okay. so what ha- I, I didn't even want to get the tattoo because I didn't want to get any right. portraits because mm-hmm. portrait yeah. tattoos are very hit or miss. But my tattoo artist, Matt Bach, is so talented. And, and we were talking about monster movies and he, I was telling him about Millicent. I was like, oh, well, this is cool lady. She designed Creature. I don't know anything about her. And he, I showed him a picture of her and he said, she's amazing. I want to tattoo her on you. And I said, right I'll look at the design and he did an amazing design and I so I got the tattoo and then a few weeks later I was at a a literary party in here in New York City where I used to live and I saw um, someone a friend of mine who is now my literary agent Brady McReynolds who is a champion and a rock star and I adore him and he said who is this woman that you got tattooed on your arm and I was like she designed the creature but nobody knows anything about her and he said that sounds like a great book yeah and i laughed and he said that sounds like a great book we should do it and that's what kicked all of it off up until that point i never thought about writing a book Wow. so let's go back to the los angeles archives the los angeles times so i found this i found this article millicent patrick was talking later and later in her life about growing up at hearst castle but the thing the miracle of it is that it said millicent patrick but her full name at that point was millicent patrick trent that was really what has made my life 
a living hell for two years is that Millicent Patrick went under seven different names over the course of her life. So researching her was a fucking nightmare. But this one article that had Millicent Patrick Trent not only talked about her childhood at Hearst Castle, but it also gave me a clue as to what happened after Creature. She must have gotten married to somebody named Trent. So suddenly I had a new name to put into archives and I had a place to start with her when her childhood and that kicked off everything for me. Yeah. And so you were just gathering like breadcrumbs. Yes. Like for years. For years. And then what then how did that lead up to you going to Disney and just getting it cuz goat showing up there, right? I mean basically. Yes. So she uh, I had found a couple of interviews where she mentioned working on Disney. And then I found a couple articles. You said it, 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 that she she said that she was the first, first female, female animator. animator. And so I thought, okay. But the problem, as you know, with Disney, you can't just show up. It's very difficult. Yeah, I did, that's that's very difficult. <laughs> very difficult to get into Disney. You can't just knock on the door and nope. talk to somebody. And so I and I knew that she had gone. To, I finally found out where she went to art school which was the Chouinard Institute. And I knew there was a pipeline between Chouinard and Disney because that's where Walt Disney trained all of its animators. So I thought, okay, she had to have worked at Disney. So I, and I tried for years. Everybody, it, it was ridiculous. Everybody I knew in LA knew someone who worked at Disney and no one could help me. But it, I was at a brunch with some friends of mine and they, they had a friend of theirs along and I was talking about the book and this lady was like, oh, you want to get into Disney? And I said, yeah. And she said, I work there. I, and three weeks later, she worked in Disney's publishing department, but was able to get me on launch on the on the lot. And she said, had said, "Hey, there's a man named Ken Shu. He's a historian here. Let me get you a meeting with him." And it was initially great, and then it was terrible because he had never heard of Millicent. But he he connected me to a woman named Mindy Johnson who was writing a history of female animators, and it was like one of those peanut butter and chocolate moments where I met Mindy and Mindy was writing this whole book on female animators and she knew Millicent Patrick as Mildred Rossi. And she knew everything that Millicent had done at Disney, but didn't know anything about the rest of her life. And I knew everything that Millicent done for the rest of her life, but I didn't know her as Mildred Rossi. So we had lunch and it was just like filling in all the gaps for each other. And it was incredible. Yeah, I think you said it was like a three hour lunch or something. Oh yeah, we closed, <laughs> we ended up closing out the cafe. Yeah. Because we just, because she had desperately wanted to know everything about Millicent and had no idea what happened to her. And I wanted to know everything that she did at Disney and Mindy and everything. And it was... And so you learned that she had actually had a hand in creating that scene that you yep. connected to. In Fant the Night on Bald Mountain sequence in Fantasia. Yeah. So she worked on that. Dumbo. She worked in the ink and paint department for a while. So she got and she worked. She was in the movie Reluctant Dragon, which is a mashup of live action and animation. And that was her first on-screen role. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, you know... But why, was she an animator? Yes. She was. So okay. she animated on Dumbo. She animated on Fantasia. Okay. Um, and I can't remember if she, off the top of my head, if she animated on Reluctant Dragon. Um, but yeah, she actually was an wow. animator and she was one of the first female animators wow. there. It was just incredible to find out. Like, again, if, if she had just worked on Creature, she would have been worthy of scholarship and someone writing a book about her. But the fact that she did all of these other things was just like, it's incredible. And do you know why she felt um, name changes yes. and reinvention? Work. Yes, she had a, well, there was a few reasons for her. One, she got, she became estranged from her family uh, unwillingly. Uh, her family estranged themselves from her. So, and so while that was happening, the same time she got married to a man named Paul Fitzpatrick. 
So she became Mildred Fitzpatrick, and she named herself after William Randolph Hearst's wife. That she, Millicent grew up on Hearst Castle, and she always idolized Hearst's wife, Millicent. So she renamed herself Millicent Fitzpatrick, and then when she divorced him, she liked, she dropped the Fitz and made it Millicent Patrick, and she just liked that, and that was her stage name. Wow. So she had sort of a, I mean, a what would you say about her how would you categorize her personal life it was tumultuous tumultuous to say the least it was very between her family estranging themselves for her almost every single relationship she ever had except for one was over the top ridiculous like you cannot make this stuff up her first her first husband uh her their relationship started as out on its affair that he was cheating on his pregnant wife with Millicent, and then the pregnant wife ended up committing suicide. Millicent's second relationship also ended in suicide, where he committed suicide because she had broke up, broken up with him, and he left a suicide note for her that said, "And to Millicent, I leave nothing but the satisfaction of knowing, of nothing but the satisfaction of knowing that you'll never have to decide whether or not you're good enough for me." And then he killed himself, holding a picture of her. Wow! In his car in Santa Monica, in 1950, and. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. It was just so everything about Millicent Patrick, like Millicent Patrick's life, was so wildly over the top. You just again, you can't make it up. I mm-hmm. couldn't believe it. When and I did you it. find out why she was estranged from her family? Mm-hmm. Reason? Her family. You found a fa- some family members, yes. right? That you. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I finally found her family, which was huge. But her, so her parents estranged themselves from her when she started when after that first relationship, and while she was working in Hollywood, because they got they thought that she was this. And, and I'm using air quotes here, black woman, because she, you know, the wife actually, the pregnant wife actually went to Millicent's father and asked to, their, her family to end the relationship and Millicent wouldn't do it. So, and then the wife killed, killed herself. And so Millicent's family got it in their head that Millicent was this hussy, this like, you know, she was filled with Hollywood vices and sin mm-hmm. and she was this bad person and involved with this Hollywood lifestyle and they didn't want anything to do with her and they mm-hmm. stopped talking to her and where was where where did her family live where is she from? They, they were all living in Los Angeles oh, in the Los okay. Angeles area at the time yeah you go through their whole the where the parents came from the mm-hmm. Europe and her Germany. parents were also very big personalities yeah, yes I love that 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 part and people you have to get this book because it's a, it's a page turner because like Thank you said you. you just can't believe this woman's life yeah and your life you know, oh, thank it's, you. it's really, I love how it's woven together. Um, I really do. It's brilliant. Um, so, so let's talk a little bit about um, how you're seeing, how the, the, the backlash that you, you got even before the book was published, yes. you say, and how you handle it every day on Twitter. <laughs> oh yeah. Being, well, we both know being a woman on the internet is loads of fun. Yes. It's uh, hilarious. It's just yeah, blast. Mm-hmm. Um, listeners can't see, but I'm making very sarcastic faces right now. Uh, it fueled me because it felt like in defending Millicent, I was also defending myself and defending all of us. So mm-hmm. I thought, "Fuck you! I'm going to show you, and I'm going to show you. I'm going to, I'm going to show you for Millicent and for all of us that we we are capable of this stuff. We have been doing this stuff. You know, we're living in this Me Too movement right now, which is amazing." And, you know, everyone wants to get more women in front of the camera and more women writing, and that's all amazing. But it's people need to remember that we've always been here, and I really wanted to set out to prove just to that. get credit for it. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's not a new thing. Women have always wanted to make music and comics and paint and write mm-hmm. and make movies and make monsters. It's not a new phenomenon. 
it's not just because it's it's the it's not talent that isn't evenly distributed it's the opportunity mm-hmm. and so i i you know i almost dedicated the book to the guy who told me that i couldn't fill a book with her story because he she could he didn't believe that she had done anything of note and that her story wouldn't fill a book so i almost said it's dedicated to the guy who thought I couldn't do this. Here's the, here's the whole book. <laughs> yeah. Here you go. Um, and was this somebody on social media? Or no, this was a historian. <laughs> yeah. Who, who didn't believe that she... Yep. That she created the monster? You know, I, I have never... Because we, we, we know uh, a handful of historian, female historians that are doing, um, you know, much like yourself, bringing women into the light. Like... Um, yeah, Lindsay Haley. Mm-hmm. You know a lot of people, but and the shit that they get online from male historians who are dug in. Yeah, they don't. It's they don't want to disrupt their own worldview. They've been living in their comfortable, privileged place for so long. It's all. It's they're happy in their boys' club, and when we come along and disrupt that narrative and a prove them wrong, but shake things up a little bit, it makes them profoundly uncomfortable. It makes them defensive. It makes them feel like they were wrong, which they were. And instead of being, it's that cognitive bias. Instead of being able to say, you know what, yeah, I was wrong. They want to dig in further and they get mad. And they get really mad. They get extremely mad. And I mean, you know, we're just talking about one in particular that um, she's in, she wrote a book called The Five. And um, it's about Jack the Ripper's five victims. Um, And the Ripperologists just won't accept that they were not prostitutes. The, the, the victims were not victims prostitutes, were not prostitutes and, and, and almost deserved you know what they got kind of thing and didn't have any worth so but what she that what, what you 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 too what you put up with online um it's scary it's scary yes when because i because they're so dug it's a, in it's a fight yes it's a it fight. is absolutely a fight and you you know you're changing and so many people are dealing with this you know people of color and queer people too trans people they're you know there's so much of, the, of all of our history that has been buried for so so long that people you know white dudes they don't they there's this great uh, study that they did where men if there are 30 percent of women and if a room is made up of 30 percent women and 60 percent men or 70 uh, percent men men perceive it as women are taking over the room when you are always the majority, even one person not who isn't like you sticks out, and the more of them it feels, you get this weird perception where you think there's more of them than they are, and all of a sudden they're taking over. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with men in, in Los Angeles and filmmaking in Hollywood where they're like, oh, well, it's a tough time to be a male filmmaker. I went on a, a very failed date with a guy who's like, well, it's really hard to be a white guy in Hollywood right now, and I said, hey, oh, you're kidding how me. many white guys got nominated for Best Director last year? Yeah. And he said, oh, well, all of them. And I said, okay, well, where's your tough time then? Yeah. But because, it just, what is that quote? Um, Equality looks like oppression when you are yes. the, when, when, you, when you're the, when you're, when you're privileged. The, where sure. you're in the positions of power. Yeah. yeah. And that's what it is. And they think that all of this stuff is a zero-sum game. And, but then they don't, they will, they're fighting tooth and nail to keep that power. And like, it's still, the best thing you can do in the world is be a white dude white straight mm-hmm, dude like mm-hmm. yeah it, it, we're not trying to take away and why didn't that relationship work out yeah right that date <laughs> oh, <laughs> that date. oh terrible <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
It's like, we're not trying Keep to. Keep at it, honey. You're gonna, you're gonna do you're it. You're gonna Just get there. Fight white, all white these da- barriers. White boys are gonna get their chance someday. <laughs> someday you'll get there. You know, we're not trying to take away your seat at the table, guys. We're just trying to get bring our own chairs in. Yeah. Just make a little room. Yeah. We're mm-hmm. not trying to take away your movies. It's like the Ghostbusters thing. You know, when a fe- when the female Ghostbusters came out, it wasn't like there was a magic spell that was going to make the other Ghostbusters movies disappear. You still have those guys. Right. You can still watch them right. anytime you want. But there's this perception that we're taking things away. And that moviegoers are, you know... There, there are more women. Fifty-one percent of yeah, women. We watch more movies. Yeah, watch the movies, and so why not have them represented in ways that you know make movies yeah. for them? And it's just like I mean, look at the romance genre in publishing. Kept publishing alive for a while. You know, it's the mm-hmm. only genre that really caters to women specifically, and it's that it has the best fandom. It sell they sell the most, and it, but it's also the one that is looked down the most. Mm-hmm. It's down on the most. It's ridiculous how we do more of the work. We're keeping these industries alive, but things aren't catered to us. And then as soon as something does, oh look, wow, Captain Marvel was the cap- <laughs> number one movie in America, making bazillions of bazillions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Like, and they're then they're surprised, like, oh wow, people want to, women want to see see stuff. Like, yeah, yeah, we have money. We're ready for we this. Have, yeah, yeah, we have money. Um, so, so where are you now with with things with her story or or is is this the end or are you I miss her a lot Uh, this book was very emotional for me to write because for years Millicent was in my head every day and um, and even before that I mean before growing up and you know you really thought about her a lot you yes you were obsessed with her yeah and I, I had this weird experience when I finished the very first draft and also when I passed in the final final version where my ex, well, who I used to live with, um, he came down and found me crying hysterically. Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, I know you're emotional and you just finished. And I said, it's not even that I finished that. I'm going to miss her. You know, she's not. And I've been on book tour for almost four months now. And, you know, now I feel like instead of her being in my head every day, now I get to have the experience where I released her out into the world and I'm carrying her banner. And I get to talk about her all the time. I'm like, you know, on, on stage, on bookstore, mm-hmm. like on podcasts like this. And now that's helped me get through missing her so much is that now I get people coming to talk to me who have or having the same experience I did when I have signings like, oh my God, I never knew about her. Now she's part of my life and it feels really cheesy and corny to say, but now I get to share her with everybody. I mean, what a service you've done to not just her life, but to, to women in horror in general. And yes. We yeah, all I'm, now we all get the role model that we've been deserving for and years. I, yeah, I mean, and, and just as an example, the the academy is yes. giving out your book. Yes, at, at tonight the at screening at Metrograph. I mean, they're they're they've taken notice of yeah. her. I mean, they, that's huge. It is so gratifying. I actually got a little emotional when we got that invite because here is this world that has been, you know, she wasn't a part of. For, because of Bud Westmore for so long, and now they're starting to recognize her, and it's the it's the greatest honor of my life to be able to do this for her. So, do you think um, you know? Even though you have this book out and it's gotten rave reviews and it's a bestseller and everything, you still have to defend Millicent and Constantly. her part in Constantly. creating the monster. Yep, and I, that might not ever go away. No. Unfortunately, and I'm ready to fight that battle until I'm dead. 
Thank you. She's happy to have you. <laughs> yeah, we all are. are. Thank yeah. you so much for joining us. And, and we won't. We usually do a throwback, but we know who yours is. <laughs> we guess it's Melissa. Yes, she well, will if, always be my hero. Well, if you had to pick another one in the in the um, in in your in your life, um, a female that kind of opened doors for you, <sighs> another hero of mine. Mm-hmm. Actually, it was, she's a friend of mine, but she also is a hero, a woman named Yvonka Vukovic. And she, uh, she blurbed the book. Um, so you can, if you, if listeners have the book, you can see her blurb on the back. But she is a filmmaker. She ran Rumor Magazine for about 13 mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. And she was the first woman that I ever saw be what I wanted to be. I met her actually at Necronomicon Providence in uh, 2013. So she went from running Rumor Magazine to being a filmmaker. And she's already extremely tall, but she wears massive massive platform shoes rides a motorcycles covered in tattoos has bright red hair has uh she has a daughter who uh who she is raising really like just she's a hero with with as a mom but she's super into the horror world and i never saw a woman that was so unapologetically herself you know and she like she is not afraid of being intimidating to men she's not afraid of swearing and being whoever she was and i when i met her when i was 23 i thought holy shit I can be that and you know and she's a friend and a colleague and I admire her so much but I think that was this moment where I thought wow I can do whatever I want I because I think that walking that middle path you know between being dressed like trying to camouflage yourself as a guy and like doing girl stuff is Yvonka just did it her own way she's so unapologetically feminine in her own way mm-hmm. And she defined, she, Ivanka defines femininity in her, you know, she has her own definition for it, how a woman wants to be, how a strong woman wants to be, while being like gorgeous and brilliant and super creative. And just seeing someone like that blaze their own trail and be super gracious and uh, kind and also very creative and successful, I thought, wow. This is okay. <laughs> I can do this too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with with the work you've done, and and I'm excited to see what you're going to do. Really and when we're excited. off air, I can tell you the next book I'm doing. Uh, oh, yay! Oh. Um, I uh, I'm I'm I just you're you're that for a lot of girls. Um, Thank you. With the publication of this book, and I know a lot of girls and women are now looking to you as that role model. And thank you. Congratulations. And thank you.